and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 4. We're continuing to look at these four verses. If you could think of these first four verses in Hebrews really as a seed, in which the rest of the book of Hebrews blossoms from it. In fact, each little phrase of this section contains a, a, a vast sum of theology. And upon each of these little statements, we see that the rest of the book of Hebrews begins to expound upon them. And it's all related to the person of Christ. What do you believe about Jesus? Who he was? Who he is? Does it even matter what you believe about Jesus? Well, it certainly matters what you believe about Jesus. In fact, it's essential to your salvation that you believe the right things about Jesus. And so as we look at this, this teaches us who the Son of God is, the second person of the Trinity. But here we also begin to realize that this is not just mere academic head knowledge in which we recite the correct things about Jesus, but the right things about Jesus are not only essential to our salvation, but vital to our living the Christian life and living life to its fullest. Church history for the last 2,000 years has argued and debated over the person of Christ. But if you really look all the way from the beginning, from Adam and Eve until the time of Christ, there was a searching for Christ, a waiting for Christ. And when Christ came, unfortunately, so many missed him. And today, many still continue to miss him. Some say, that Jesus was just a prophet or he was just a good man. Some people have said that Jesus was, well, he was part God. He was part man. Some say that he became like a new thing. A third thing rather than being truly God or truly man. Some said that he only appeared to be man. He was just a phantom because God could not take on human flesh. Some say that he gave up the Godhead and his deity upon the cross. For 2,000 years, there's been all sorts of things stated about the person of Christ, and the church continually comes back to passages such as we find here and repeats the same thing. In the Apostles' Creed, we read, We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And with one voice, we say, as the Nicene Creed said, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Let me ask you, when was the last time you recited the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. When was the last time you meditated upon those words? You might think, well, I read the Bible, and that's enough. And certainly the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is enough. But God has given us His Holy Spirit 
And men before us have come and argued against the heresies that have arisen. And by the way, there's no new heresies. In fact, we looked at this last Sunday night. Some of the modern heresies that we have today are just regurgitated from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. There's nothing new. And so the church has gathered over the years to say, write down, this is what we believe about the person of Christ. And specifically, as we look at this passage this morning, I think of the Nicene Creed, and this is the title of the sermon, that Jesus is light of light. Where did the authors of the Nicene Creed come up with that? They came up with that from the very passage we're going to look at this morning. And so let us hear this word of God. That way our hearts and minds might be guarded in the truth of who Christ is. This is God's word in verse 1 of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is far more excellent than theirs. And this is the word of God. This is his holy, perfect word. And if you've been here since we've started these Hebrew sermons, you might be wondering, when are we going to get out of these four verses? It's going to be a while. So just hang tight. This morning, we're going to look specifically at the beginning of verse 3, which states this, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And I want to state this, is this is saying one central truth, that the Son, that is Jesus, that came and took on flesh, is truly God. That's the whole point of that statement, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That is to say that Jesus is truly and fully God. Now, what does this mean to say that he is the radiance of the glory of God? Radiance is that light, and radiance itself flows from the source. It's light from light. And specifically, Christ is said to be that light or to be that radiance. He is to be that shining of the glory of God. We have to reflect upon this for a moment. What does it mean to say the glory of God? That is speaking of God's very nature. In other words, that is to say who God is in and of himself. In fact, as we look in the scriptures, we see this idea of this correlation between God in his nature, God who he is, and his glory being inseparable. And that Christ then is the radiance or the shining of who God is. 
You see this so clearly in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You see this idea there of God's glory and God's very being as being inseparable. In Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And so what we see very clearly is this correlation between God as God is and His glory, and His glory is the representation of who He is. To put this another way, We could see this as God's glory is the revelation of His very nature. In Leviticus chapter 9, in verse 23, we read this, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. God reveals himself by his glory. It's a revelation of the very nature of God. And what's so amazing is the connection between God's glory and the revealing of God's glory with the connection of light itself. In other words, God's glory and the revelation of God's glory is something that is tangibly seen, tangibly witnessed. In Exodus chapter 24, in verse 16, it says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of Israel in the sight of all the people of Israel. In other words, as God's glory descended upon Mount Sinai, it was a tangible manifestation of God himself through light, or is described here as fire. Now we have to understand something about God. God cannot be contained in anything. God is omnipresent. God is infinite. And all things that we see or witness or manifest themselves in our present are finite and limited. And so what's amazing is this light itself that represents the glory of God is not the glory, but actually flows from the glory. Does, he make the, does that make sense, the difference between those two things, or this idea that his, the light is not the glory, but the glory is revealed through the light. This helps us understand something that the author of Hebrews has already told us, is that all creation comes through the Son. Little How does that help us in understanding what the author was saying when he wrote, through whom also he created the world? Well, it is through the Son that God reveals himself. 
It is through the Son that God brought forth the worlds into existence. It is through the Son that we experience salvation. But specifically here, what we're being told is that it is through the Son that the glory of God is revealed. It's not on a fire on top of Mount Sinai, but it is in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this teaches us a very central truth of our Christology, that is the study of Christ, and that is the oneness of the Father and the Son. The Father is the first person of the Trinity, the Son is the second person of the Trinity, as we typically say, and we say that they are one. And this is a statement of the oneness, that He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus says it very plainly in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And so this shows us the unity of, of them, but we have to also begin to probe with some questions. God's glory is eternal. God's glory is eternal. Before time began, God was. Was there ever a time where God lacked glory? The answer is no. His glory is eternal. So guess what else is? The radiance of His glory is also eternal. The radiance, the shining forth, is eternal. One of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, said this, quote, It is impossible that glory should be without radiance, as it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness. In fact, this is a statement not only of his deity, but that he is co-eternal with the Father. One of the big debates that first crept up into the church was by a guy named Arius, and he said that there was a time when Christ was not. In other words, he said that Christ was created. There there was a time when he didn't exist. The modern-day manifestation of, of Arius' theology is Jehovah's Witnesses. They would believe that there was a time where Christ was not. But if you look at this statement here, he is the radiance of the glory of God, and you take that to those logical implications that we just took it to, that God's glory is eternal, thus the radiance of God's glory is eternal. For someone to argue that Christ at some point was not would then actually to be arguing that God was at some point not. Because if God is eternal, His glory is eternal, then His radiance is also eternal. I want us to think about this for a second. I've already referenced one church father. Now I'm going to reference a Puritan. And I do this so that we know that we stand in continuity with 2,000 years of church history. That's important for us. We didn't just make this up. We're not lone rangers. But we stand on the shoulders of giants. And we stand on the shoulders of John Owen this morning, who makes these six points about this. 
And he references the sun, S-U-N, sun, and a beam that flows from the sun. The sun itself is the source of the beam of light, right? Well, we also know this then, is the Father is of himself, that the Son, S-O-N, is of the Father. He also makes this point. He says the Son, that is S-U-N, in producing the beam, does not change. There's no alteration of the nature of the Son in producing light. In other words, the light that comes from the Son that, that, that gives us heat, and then provides light for us, the light itself does not change the actual sun. Same can be said of the sun that is begotten of the Father. But the Father does not Himself change with His Son. We also know this, is that the sun in order of nature is before the beam, right? The sun itself has to produce light in order for there to be a beam of light. So we recognize that though they are coexistence, that as soon as the sun is in existence, what is there? There's light. As we recognize those two things, we also know this, then the Father, in order of nature before the Son, though in existence, they're both co-eternal. There's never been a time that the Father was without the Son. This is why the the London Confession of Faith, the Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689 says this, The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and Son. That is to say that the Son is begotten of the Father, but it's eternal. There's never a time in which he wasn't begotten of the Father. One professor at Midwestern Baptist Seminary writes this. He says, The Father is the Son's eternal source. His everlasting principle, which is why Hebrews 1.3 describes the Son as the radiance of the glory of God. The Father is not the Son's creator, but he is the Son's Father in eternity. We also recognize this about looking at the sun, of the, the, the sun that provides light for us, is this is the beam of light that comes from the sun is actually distinct from the sun, isn't it? They're not the same thing. The sun is the sun, but the beam is distinct from it, so as the Father is not the sun, and the sun is is not the Father. The Father did not die on the cross for you. The Holy Spirit did not die upon the cross for you. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, died upon the cross. But yet we have already seen they are one. They are one. Jesus makes this point of distinction Himself where He says in John chapter 8, verse 42, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of My own cord, but He sent Me. Notice the distinction that Jesus makes between Him and the Father. But what have we already read? He says, I and the Father are what? 
1. Just think about John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The word with indicates a distinction between the Father and the Son, but the next clause says, and the Word was God, and that word was is looking back eternally. That the Word, the Logos of God, was always God. And so to say that he is the radiance of the glory of God, we see distinctness, but yet also unity. You cannot have one without the other. And that brings us to this point, is the beam is never separated from the sun. The sun is not ever separated or without a beam of light. The sun that sits in the sky, or as it appears to us to sit in the sky... It's never without light. It doesn't turn off or on like we so conveniently turn on or off a light. But actually, once we turn on these lights, there is no separation from the light itself and the light that we perceive. So what does this teach us? It means that the Son is never separate from the Father, nor the Father from the Son. There's never a time in which Jesus was separated from the Father. And the Son is not inferior to the Father, but equal in every single way. But there's something also wonderful about this that we have to recognize, is the Son that gives us light and gives us warmth. It's only seen and made visible by the light that comes from it. So likewise... Our Heavenly Father is only seen by His Son. And He makes Himself known to us in the person of His Son. So when we look at Jesus, guess what we see? We see the perfections of God in human flesh. This is why John says this in chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, that is the incarnation of Jesus, the eternal one that was with God and was God. He became flesh, and we have seen his glory. We have beheld his glory. It is glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Very much like what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Or verse 18 of John, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that is the Son, has made him known. How and why? Because he is the radiance of his glory. He is the one that reveals the Father to us that we may know the Father. This is why in Colossians, Paul wrote, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that when we want to know what does God look like, what was God like, we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the radiance of the glory of God. 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. God has given us His glory, as Paul writes, in the face of Jesus Christ. We may know the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something wonderful about this is because God has revealed Himself to us finally in His Son, we may be partakers in that glory. You let that sink in for a second. God who is incomprehensible and reveals Himself by His glory and through the radiance of His glory, He makes us and invites us to be partakers in that. In fact, this is what we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Did you catch that? We're being actively transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We, if you are in Christ, are being transformed into that glory. And in for Christ, what we see in this picture of this partaking of this glory is this incomprehensible statement that Peter gives us in Second Peter, where he tells us that by and through Christ, we are rescued from the corruption of the world. So you think of that corruption of the world, all that we see is decaying, all that we see is fading, but the glory of God that is eternal, that is going to be shared, and that we get to be partakers of, look at what he says. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire." What an amazing statement, so packed full of things where we could spend the rest of our lives examining. But you notice the key to this corruption was a knowledge of Him who has revealed the glory of God. And that we're invited to become partakers of this. All of this is to tell us that the eternally begotten Son of God, through whom the Father reveals Himself, is the one that not only offers us forgiveness of sins, not only the one who offers us comfort and peace and contentment and joy and love and all of those things, but by His grace, He makes us partakers of His own glory. And it's in and through the Son that we become adopted heirs and partakers, as Peter says, of that divine nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is light of light. But it doesn't stop there. He is the exact imprint of His nature. Now, an imprint is a representation. It was used of an engraver, the one who would mint coins and would put the image 
of someone on that coin and it was to be that's what the the word was used for and so it is to say that, that Christ is that exact representation of God the Father you think of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 though he was in the form of God as we have seen he is the image of God and so specifically here, it says he is that imprint, that representation, and it's translated of his nature. And specifically, this is in reference to God's self-existence. What is self-existence? It is this, it's what you and I are not. God is. God eternally exists. We don't. For God to be self-existent means he depends on nothing, no one, and no thing. God exists. This is how he reveals himself to Moses, isn't it? How does he reveal himself to Moses? Tell them, I am. That is the self-existence of God. How God reveals himself to Moses. By, and by the way, how does he reveal himself to Moses? Tangibly in fire. Could that not be the second person of the Trinity? Absolutely. And he reveals himself to Moses as his self-existence. How does Jesus then introduce himself? Think about this. Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, is introduced to Yahweh as I am. Well, how does Jesus introduce himself? Well, Jesus says words such as this, I am the bread of light. I'm the bread of life. I am the light. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the vine. Jesus introduces himself by the holy name of God. He says, I am that is that Jesus himself says he is self-existence. This is why he says in John chapter 5, I believe verse 26, that the Father has granted the Son life in himself. That is, he himself is I am. He is self-existent. And so when we see that he is the imprint, exact imprint of his nature, that is to say that he is I am. And in the incarnation, that is when he takes on human flesh and Jesus becomes man, it does not go away. Colossians 2.9 In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Incomprehensible. So again, as we look at this statement, it's really paralleled to the first statement it reveals the oneness between the Father and the Son, but it also reveals the distinctness. Because it's an imprint of nature, not person. In other words, the Son is not the same person as the Father, but they are one in being, essence, and nature. Does theology matter? Does what we believe about Christ matter? Yes, absolutely. And as we read these words, we have to come to, to wrestle with a few things. 
What have we seen about the Son? He is eternally God, one with the Father, distinct though. He is eternally begotten from the Father that He proceeds from the Father. But yet He took on human flesh, this one that is eternal and self-existent. And there's no words that we could gather or way of describing this at all that would do justification. In fact, Calvin said we must all allow that there's a degree of impropriety in the language when it is what is borrowed from created things is transferred to the hidden majesty of God. Let me tell you what Calvin's saying there. He is saying that we use words that are borrowed from creation to describe the one that is uncreated. In other words, our words are going to infinitely fall short of the one that is infinite. They just don't do justice. But I just want you to think about this, that the eternally begotten Son, that radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, that one that is self-existent, the one who brings about the world into existence, He will take on flesh from a woman named Mary. Jesus, in His human nature, is from the flesh of Mary. Just as it's promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And that makes sense. It has to be that he is actually of the flesh of Mary because the genealogy of Christ from Adam through Abraham to Jacob through Judah and to David all to Mary means that in order for God to fulfill his promises, this eternal self-existent God takes on the flesh of this righteous woman, Mary. That he is actually taking on the flesh of a woman. This is beyond comprehension. And had he not taken on the flesh of Mary the promises of an eternal throne from David, what would we make of those? Or him being called the son of David? But this is actually essential that we understand that this one that is the exact imprint of the nature of God took on the human flesh of Mary. What does it say in Romans 1.3 concerning his son who was descended from David according to the what? To the flesh. That he actually took on flesh. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 makes it even more clear. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman. And that woman was Mary. He came and stepped into time. The one who is eternal. The one who is eternal took on flesh and assumed a nature, a human nature, into the unity of his person. He was truly human. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, a verse that makes some people uncomfortable, but it shouldn't make us uncomfortable, and that is this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Can God increase in wisdom? No. Can God increase in anything? No, because that means that he would have lacked. But what do we see of the Son? When he took on flesh, it says he increased in 
wisdom. That's according to his human nature. What we see in John chapter 4, in verse 5, where it says, So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's not hard for us to capture that or picture that if you've walked all day long in the Middle Eastern sun. Likely you would get tired and be wearied from your journey and want to take a seat and take a, take a load off for a second. Let me ask you, can God become wearied? Does God grow tired? I mean, can we really apply Psalm 121 where it says, He who watches over Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers? Does that really mean that? Absolutely it means that. God doesn't tire. There's nothing that can tire God out. God doesn't become wearied. But what do we read of the son here? He'd been walking, and just like you or I, if we had been walking all day, what would happen to us? We'd need to take a seat for a second because we're tired. Jesus, according to his humanity, is finite, he's limited, he grew tired. But yet, we still see at the same time that the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. God is infinite. God is omnipresent. Jesus is infinite. Jesus is always omnipresent, yet his human nature became local. It was in space, and it was in time. There's, there's, there's no example of that that exists for us to point to and say, this is what it was like. Because what the Scripture describes of us, of the one in whom the deity dwells bodily and fully, is beyond our confession. So here is what we confess as a church. We confess the true humanity and the true deity of Christ. Two natures united in one person. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus took on human flesh and became man. To quote the Baptist faith again from 1689, quote, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. It's amazing to think that all that we read about the nature of God, His eternal self-existence, 
takes on flesh. But there's something beautiful in this and comforting in it, and it is this. Is the Son is truly God and truly man guarantees the accomplishment of our salvation and is the sole basis of our assurance. It is the sole basis of our righteousness. So why does theology matter? Why does this doctrine, why is it crucial? Well, it's crucial for this to state it in these ways. Christ as man could stand in the place of man as the representative of man, as the representative head. If you think about this, why are we in this mesh right now? It's because we say our father Adam fell, right? Adam represented us before God, and Adam failed. And as a result of Adam's failure, we are sinful people. A man was our representative named Adam, and he plunged all of his progeny into the sinful world we now have inherited. Adam was our federal head. He represented us, and he fell. Christ comes as man and represents us before God, but as the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So he represents us as God Man, that is Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, the eternally Holy One, the one that always did the will of his Father. He's the one that represents us, whereas Adam failed. And because Adam fell, because sin entered the world, because we are sinners and guilty before this holy God, a blood sacrifice was necessary to make atonement. And so God sends himself. He sends his son. Jesus took on flesh and blood to be the sacrifice himself on our behalf. The eternal punishment that is due for our sin could only be bore by an eternal one. And he bore in our place as eternal God and truly man. And this mystery of the incarnation is beyond comprehension, yet it is the means by which God reveals himself to us fully and finally to man and through whom we are reconciled to God. So then we, friends, must look to Christ. He's our only hope. He's our only salvation. This is why Jesus. you, you can almost hear Jesus flabbergasted in a non-sinful way, of course, in that upper room where Philip says in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Friends, if you want to know God, you need to look to Jesus but consider what these truths mean. The eternal Son became weary so that you may have eternal rest. The eternal Son became thirsty so that you may never thirst again. The eternal Son experienced a broken body so that yours may be ultimately healed. No pain. The eternal Son was beaten and nailed to a cross so that you would be set free. 
The eternal Son gave up his life so that you may live through him who raised his own life. The eternal Son was forsaken so that you'll never be forsaken. The eternal Son was punished for sins so that you would be forgiven of them. There's nothing greater than Jesus in this world. Jesus created the world. He is the inheritor of the world. He maintains the world. He died out of love for the world and the salvation of all peoples. The world is united through and in him and is reaching its culmination in him. And so let us rejoice in our Savior. Let us worship him in his holiness. Let us meditate upon his glory. Let us never forsake the knowledge that we have been given of him. Let us always look to Christ with our empty hands of faith, where in him we receive full pardon, full forgiveness, the fullness of love, the fullness of peace, the fullness of joy. Only in him that is eternal can offer true contentment even now in this life. And so let us look to the radiance of the glory of the Father, light of light, let us look to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your beloved Son, whom you sent to pay the penalty for our sins on our behalf, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious and merciful. Father, I pray that this would stir our hearts to worship, this would stir our hearts to reflection and meditation upon your glory that you have revealed in your Son and the glorious truths of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.